Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. This is our fifth and final episode in this week of special episodes of the Red Box podcast, hopefully a bit lighter and a bit less uh, miserable than the rest of the episodes have been this week. I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Hislop, editor of Private Eyes since the age of 25, I've argument used for you team captain since the age of 30. Private Eyes now been poking fun at politicians for 58 years, have I got news for you now, and it's... F- I think 58th series and he's back on tonight with Alan Johnson hosting Janie Godley and uh, Tim Shipman from the Sunday Times. So I suppose my first question Ian is what on earth are you doing having Tim Shipman on? <laughs> and like, not you. And not me but I'm quite clearly funnier than Tim Shipman. Well by the end of this podcast as we know I will regret this entirely. <laughs> uh, I think Tim's on in order to explain his um, forecasts from the previous week, and he can tell us why they didn't quite happen, or not not in quite those terms. Well, well, obviously, it's not for me to comment on whether or not all of Tim's stories stand up by Sunday lunchtime. No, I mean, I'm just saying they're very, very exciting on Sunday, and sometimes they're not quite so exciting on Monday <laughs> or Tuesday. Things move very fast. Things they move do. Very fast. They move very fast. It's very fast. difficult. And, you're, you know, even, more, even harder for you doing a fortnightly magazine because things move incredibly fast. How late in the day can you go, basically? For sheer vindictiveness, I mean, last issue they had a vote at 8 o'clock, which is when we go to press on a Monday evening, literally at 8. So um, I felt um, uh, persecuted. No, it is, <laughs> it is very difficult. I suppose what it allows us to do is admit that things are, are changing at an unbelievable speed. Just pick out the stuff that seems to be important uh, without saying this is what's going to happen. Less, um, of, less of the prediction and more of the... More the of the analysis yeah, yeah. and more of the, um, thank goodness Marc Francois has said something else amusing. <laughs> um, uh, we can go for the comedy. No, what would Brexit be without him? I mean, people thought Mog was funny. No, no. I know we've been through this whole stage. It was Mog. And then I, I went through a big uh, stage of Andrew Bridgen. I was really enjoying yes, Andrew Bridgen's yes, work. Yeah. Mark Francois has really come into his own. Uh, his work, his oeuvre, as you call it, <laughs> I think, will, will become, I mean, really celebrated for generations. What's your current favourite Marc Francois moment? No, I mean, the stare out was great. Yes. I mean, there's no two ways With Will it. Self. Uh, with Will Self, yeah. yes, which was just terrific. I mean, the idea that Will wouldn't go to any extreme um, was a sort of bad misreading. And no, I think it was—I think it was the first time that I thought he thought he was actually in the war. Um, I know it was his father. It encapsulated all that delusion of the post-war generation, which includes me, of because they'd seen a lot of war films. They imagined they were there. Yeah, they, yeah, they were, mis- they were mis- literally mis- there, yeah. and and that is quite funny. 
I think my f- current favourite is still, I wouldn't vote for this if you put a gun in my mouth. Yes. Now, that was very, very good. <laughs> we had a cartoon about um, how um, he wouldn't vote for it if you put a gun in his mouth, and certainly not at weekends. Uh, <laughs> it's an old-fashioned TA joke. TA joke. I made a similar one and then got accused of disrespecting the army and the 17.4 million all at the same time. No, well, you were doing none of those things. No, not at all. No, it was just disrespecting I mean, Ralph whatever you say, um, you will get people saying you're disrespecting whichever way round it was. And I mean, I thought I, you know, up until Brexit, I thought I was a little Englander. You know, I've made films about trains and churches and I'm quite keen on the history of the army and my family and military. And But no, um, I've, I've suddenly mis- You've misread been overtaken. myself. You've been overtaken. Uh, now, so here we are in your office, which yes. I'm pleased to report for listeners is exactly how I hoped it would be. Sort of higgledy-piggledy furniture, piles of books, lots of paper and things pinned to the walls. He's lying. It's chrome steel <laughs> and there's silent banks of very young researchers working for nothing. Yes. Looking, yeah. looking glumly <laughs> at me. So what for you is the point of Private Eye? What do you hope it to be every week, every uh, fortnight? The point of Private Eye is to tell the truth smilingly. It's to hold the the powerful to account, but with with a, a joke. It's easy to get very pompous. Um, I mean, I, I read a lot of satire when I was at university, and, you know, people like Alexander Pope, you know, they they were very confident about, you know, people would be safe from the bar, the pulpit and the throne, yet touched and shamed by ridicule alone. And I think probably as a younger man, I, I absolutely believed that, or I believed it enough to claim it. Um, <laughs> uh, you get less confident, particularly after, you know, 30 years of the same stories coming around and banging away at some stories for that long. I mean, we're in the middle of Brexit. I have to say, as a young journalist, you know, the first people I thought were really funny were those backbenchers who just banged on about Europe (laughs) and never said anything else. And they're still there. They're still there. It's not even the same type of person. It's the same people making the same speech. Again, again, And that is extraordinary. Yeah. Which bit... Which bit of the magazine do you like the most? Is it the stuff at the front, the jokes, or is it the gossip, or is it the stuff in the back? For me, the the unique thing about the eye is you get to do both. Yeah. And very early on, you know, my predecessor said the formula that um, they'd come to, you know, which is one of his, his great inventions, was you make jokes about what people know and then... You add to that by telling them what they don't know. Then the week after, you can make jokes about that because by then they'll know it. So you, it's a rolling dialogue between the two bits of the paper. I mean, obviously, I love the jokes. People say, oh, how do you come up with a cover? And I say, well, we all sit around and then I put my own joke on because uh, I'm the editor, which isn't strictly true. And when um, does that happen? When does the, when does the cover? Very it, late very on late, Monday. Yeah. And there's sort of three or four of us sit around and try and make each other laugh. And you can imagine it's sort of... The attempt is not to laugh at anyone else's joke at all in case it gets on the cover. But we come to a consensus in the end. And sometimes it's really obvious, you know, the joke's just there. Sometimes you have to work a bit harder. So for some people, satire is sort of for a point that you're trying to further a political yeah. cause or viewpoint. Or, but you, you sort of pride yourself on not doing that. No, I would poking. say I'm, no, I'm, no one could read Private Eye and know which side you were on. I'd want them to know what I thought about a particular issue. I'd want them to know where the eye stood on whatever the current debating point was. I mean, all satirical jokes are there to make a point. Yeah. I don't think they're there to make a tribal political point. And some people are very disappointed. They just say, if you're a satirical publication, why aren't you 100% pro-Corbyn? And they literally have no idea why a satirical (laughs) magazine would not essentially have jokes which say... 
Do you know why Corbyn's marvellous? Yes, because he's so marvellous. <laughs> that, that would counter satire for some people on the left. And the same is true. I mean, you know, here are some cancelled subscribers from furious Brexiteers who say, I don't understand. Why is, is Private Eye, why does it have a view? Why isn't it impartial? I mean, as though we were the BBC. And I think <laughs> that's a strange reading and of the publication. If you're a subscriber, you must have read enough by now to know that that's not really what the magazines are they literally cancel yeah, subscriptions yeah. i mean they're, they're there because it's a it's a running joke in the letters page i was almost close to cancel. how many yeah no is it just a constant steady stream of cancel it subscriptions? is a constant stream and uh, there are people who say i've read private eye uh, for 30 years and i cannot remember it being so blatantly on one side or another debate and i was thinking when i arrived here richard ingram was putting mrs thatcher on the cover every single issue and he ran the <laughs> dear bill column I mean, for, for decades, I thought it isn't true that, you know, we are here as some sort of impartial and unbiased service. Do you think that's partly because Brexit has radicalised people in a way that they were people who went out and voted Labour or Conservative or Liberal or whatever in an election, but they didn't think about it hugely. They were quite happy to chuckle along at jokes at leaders' expense. They're now a Brexiteer or Remainer in a, in a much more sort of angry way. Yes, I think the Brexit debate has attracted a lot of people who weren't ever interested in politics. Yeah. And part of the problem with that is that they voted once for one issue and that's it. They think that's the entire story. Um, and for anybody like yourself, myself, who, who follows politics and tries to work out how it works in that country, that isn't how it works. Yeah. Um, so they're furious and they say, I voted, I voted here. That's the end of the story. Whereas, of course... It's never the end of a story, and certainly not in a democracy as, as, as complex as ours. I mean, I just do wish people would play on a loop all the time Mrs Thatcher's um, interview on the Jimmy Young show, in which she said we should never have a referendum on Europe because it is an issue too complex to put to the people in a straightforward yes or no vote. That was the Thatcherite view. How we've got a, uh, <laughs> the right wing of the Tory party now claiming to be the heirs of Mrs Thatcher and refusing to accept this is extraordinary. And you've unusually, given that you've... I've been through lots of interviews uh, with you, you've never said how you voted in general elections, but you've been quite clear where you stand on Brexit. Yes, no, I mean, I I was always accused of being a Eurosceptic, which, you know, if we're talking about the institutions and the desperate need of reform in Europe, I still am. It is possible to think the EU isn't brilliant while also thinking that Brexit might be a bad idea. Yes, and I do try and explain this to people. And, and um, you know, the I, I ran a Brussels Sprouts column for years um, about, you know, failure to sign off the books and, you know, the Greek olive harvest and other great scams <laughs> of our times and also the arrogance of the Commission. I mean, none of this is news to anyone who's followed politics, yeah. which is why this it's so frustrating to be told by people well i expect you're being paid by george soros and you love the eu i don't love the eu it's the least worst option and when you look at what is about to engulf the eu i think these elections are not going to go well um, for the old-fashioned um centrist middle it requires a slightly broader approach um than talking about slavery and vassalitude or whatever new word uh, we've come up with to describe, you know, this um, trading arrangement. So when you're putting the magazine together, what impact has sort of Twitter had? Because everyone now 
has a one-liner. There's a picture caption. Yeah. You know, the second a picture appears. Yeah. So are you are you looking at Twitter? I can't see it. There's not a computer on your desk. No, I don't do Twitter. You're not, you're not Twittering. Maybe that's the answer. If you don't look at any of it, you can't be influenced. And if you happen to come up with the same joke, it doesn't matter. Are you sort of conscious of that? There's a sort of... The news cycle is turning yeah. fast, but so is the satirical cycle, if you like. Yeah, no, I think there's a sort of, a, I suppose, a more democratic across-the-board response. Yeah. Lots of people have access to it. Lots of people immediately make a joke. And then they say, well, I mean, you know, it's just like reading Twitter. Well, it really isn't. You know, the cartoonists I use are you know they're pretty funny that's why i hire them and uh, the writers are are funny and it's a craft and there are people who do it better than other people uh, just saying i've already seen this means you've seen there's a news story yeah and someone has said something about it and that isn't the end um it is perfectly capable for other people to then say something else about it so no i don't i do feel that's a bit feeble to say it's it's all already been done on twitter it hasn't. Why would a newspaper employ a cartoonist? Why would you have yeah. a sketch writer yeah. if anybody could do it? And Private Eye's not really on the internet either. It's sort of, it's it sh- it shunned, you put bits and pieces online yeah. in a way, but it sort of shunned the rush online. Do you, do you think that's why it's still successful as a print? That it is a thing that you have to either get to the letterbox, go to the shop and buy? Yeah, I think it's why we still exist. Yeah. I can't claim crap. I mean, I stole the idea really from Le Canal Chenet, the French yeah. um, satirical magazine. I noticed that they had a website which just said, go and buy the magazine. That's it. <laughs> I mean, that's real bravery. We, we do slightly more than that. Yeah. No, but I mean, it was, there was a, a huge digital rush um, and a, a huge number of uh, people were convinced that the only way was to put your product either free or online digitally or free with. And most of those publications have since gone bust, yeah. you know, or are in the process of going bust. I believe in print. Our readership is uh, very diverse. Uh, We've got loads of people, the bottom end, the young end, coming into it, partly because we're so cheap. But, you know, that doesn't save lots of publications. Buying the eye, you get beautifully reproduced cartoons, which just look better than they do online anyway. And you get the pleasure of serendipity. There is a piece here, there is a piece here, there's another piece here. You may read all of them in a way you don't online. I mean, all these arguments we've been through, and I'm just pleased that, as I, as I continually have to explain to people, I really want to employ Francis Ween. I want to employ Craig Brown. I can't do it for nothing. Um, <laughs> these people, because they're very good, require payment. Yeah. And I like to pay everyone. I mean, no one at the eye is on a sort of graduate cheapo uh, yeah. trainee course. No one here works for nothing. I think, you know, my own craft, journalism, is, you know... Uh, maybe not be the most noble calling, but I think it's worth paying for. I think it should be done well. So I think you have to charge. I have the same arguments with people about the Times when they take screen grabs of whole stories and then put them on Twitter. It's like, that's, or they tweet, this is brilliant. It should be outside the paywall so everyone can read it. But, no, the, that, you've, ex- you've proved exactly the opposite point. In a moment, I'll ask Ian about his career on Have I Got News For You. Uh, we'll be back after this short break. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk about your other job then, the, the other thing that you're best known for. Have I got news for you? Yes. Uh, which is back for its, like I said, 58th series. Can I just say, since you said, oh, well, everyone's being totally miserable, I think Henning Venn last week made the most single brilliant joke by saying, a man who's tired of Brexit is tired of life. And I thought to have a German comedian come adapt Dr. Johnson <laughs> um, and turn it into a celebration of Brexit was just stunning. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> now, how do you approach... Have I got news for you? Do you prep for it? I mean, every, it's been a while, but every so often there's a story about how it's all scripted and people just turn yeah. up and read out the joke. What do you but do? That, that, those, those stories are written by people who've obviously never seen the programme. <laughs> how do you prepare for it? Do you prepare at all? Do you know what's going to come up? Do you just turn up and well, wing it? Um, I'm afraid I turn up at, at 6.30 and say, so it's Paul, and then we do the show, and it's, it's not rocket science, um, <laughs> you know, what's going to turn up. I mean, it's always the same stories, yeah. apart from the second round of stories about parrots and um, iguanas, <laughs> and I've never, ever known any of them. You know, I'm, someone will contradict me and say, I got one right in 1984. But, I mean, you know, on the whole, I have no idea. So, no, I mean, the the thing about it is it is it's meant to happen in front of you. Yeah. I mean, that is the idea. And say last week, if someone had said, oh, the big thing in round one is going to be explaining to David Dimbleby what a booty call is, I would have said, I don't think <laughs> I can prepare for this. Um, it's a strange show. I'm not sure you ever really did get there either. I'm not, did you think you knew by the end what you were talking about? Do you know, I'm not entirely sure, but <laughs> I think um, Stacey Dooley was about to explain it in, in, in more graphic terms when he said, you know, why don't you give me one? Um, I did, <laughs> which I think he meant a, a call, but the audience, I'm afraid... You know, was way ahead of us, and so it all dissolved. But it was um, it was interesting seeing David W doing that. Presumably, he could only do it having stepped down from doing questions. Yes, hard. I think. I mean, he'd been asked for years, like yeah. everyone else. But I think it was just. I mean, for us, it was just hysterical. I mean, it was like being on Question Time, except you didn't have to do what he said. Because um, <laughs> you've done Question Time as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done Question loads of times, and and which is a quite a terrifying show. But that's terrifying because. Um, well, I mean, in in the Robin Day era, it was terrifying because you thought he would eat you alive. I remember when I was very young, he had Charles Moore on. And Charles, at one point, said, please, Robin, can you stop torturing me? I mean, that's that's rare on television. <laughs> on television yeah. He just skewered him. I was about the same age as Charles and went on. Uh, you know, Shirley Williams was on. And it was sort of, it was it was very terrifying at that stage. I mean, nowadays, it's, I suppose I'm older, I've done it more often. But the audience now is allowed much more say. So it's it's less forensic. There are more panellists. There are five, not four. It was a much tighter, more intimate, more ah, sort of show. Whereas now everybody sort of has their say on a topic and then you move on to the next one and it's yeah. slightly less. Do you get nervous or worry about, have I got news for you? I mean, no, I always get 
nervous before a new series. I mean, particularly, I think, well, you know, does anyone want to see this anymore? Is there anything else to say? And, and again, it's it's live performance, and I don't do that most of the year. You know, I look across and I think, Paul, will you be touring, you know, with an improv show half this year or whatever? I've been sitting in an office, really. And they're 300 people. I mean, they can murder you. They're not, they're not, <laughs> very, not very sort of forgiving audience. And who, as you probably noticed, who would you like to have on? I'd, I'd like to have anyone who's at the middle of things, who's got something and is prepared to be indiscreet about it. I mean, there's nothing more boring than people come on who say, well, I can't really say. <laughs> uh, you know, so in terms of politics, it's fantastic having people on who open up. You know, Jess Phillips, terrific. Alan Johnson's great because you start thinking every time he's been on, he was talking about his time at the Home Office and immigration. And I just thought, why didn't you say any of this <laughs> when you were there? The time, yeah. You get a real sort of frisson there. So I really like that. I suppose I should ask you about Boris Johnson. Yes, you and should. your collective role in creating him. Yes. You're, this is what you're accused of. You, you took yeah. this up until that point, completely anonymous, shy, retiring individual. He appeared on I Got News for You, and before you know it, he's ruined the country. Yes. So it, goes it, the narrative. Seven appearances by Boris in total. I think the last one over a decade ago are entirely responsible for the current <laughs> thing. I don't buy that. I mean, I have to say, if I'm looking for someone to blame, I blame London. Uh, the largest electorate in the in Europe. Twice, people in London who should know better voted for Boris. I didn't vote for Boris. I'm not accepting the blame for him. You lot, collectively, millions of you, voted for him twice. And it's no good saying, oh, I'd seen him on a comedy show. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, the first time Boris appeared on Have I Got News, he was so cross with me. He wrote a large piece in The Telegraph attacking the show because I brought up D- Darius Guppy and the, and the tape which um, I still have, obviously, Boris, if you're out there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I'm not having that. You know, I mean, Ken Livingstone was on the show previously, um, appeared more times than Boris, and we were accused then of making Ken Livingstone's career. I mean, Charles Kennedy, one of our most popular guests, I mean, wasn't Prime Minister. He he was funny. He was genial. (laughs) He didn't make it. I mean, we you know, we've had Caroline Lucas on a lot of times. It hasn't done the Green vote a huge amount of good. Um, Maybe the two things just aren't connected. Do you know, I think it may not be that simple. Now, one of the things that we've done on the podcast this week was talk, uh, speaking to MPs about, I mean, it's a pretty grim time in Westminster at the moment. And actually, I think what's happened is quite a lot of them are keeping their heads down. And so we've got to give Marc Francois appearing on the telly a lot because nobody else will. But there's an awful lot of time. Well, tired... the media does this. I mean, it does tend to go for characters who are funny or odd <laughs> or bizarre and that's you know that's a reflection of human nature rather than a deliberate bias against the sensible yeah do you ever feel sorry for mps oh, yeah i mean i do and i i felt sorry for them this time you know with people again saying oh god why can't they just get on with it i mean really blimey i mean the mps why what are they doing and i think well i'm afraid this is how you voted collectively we returned to parliament which was incapable of agreeing we didn't give anyone a majority lots of people out there if if we're talking about the, the collective will of the people yeah. the latest manifestation of it we have is the general election result not the referendum the general election result and that result guaranteed stasis in the house of commons so that's what they ended up with i mean their role now is to get out of it yeah you know and we haven't given them long some of them have been very very tardy about it so i do feel sorry for them in that they are doing what they were put there to do why do you think currently the current crop of 
leaders and politicians is so bad? I mean, do you think they are? I mean, I think they are, but do you think they are? Yeah, no, I think I think it's difficult not to think yeah. they are. <laughs> no, I think they are. And why Why do you think that is? Why is it the stars have aligned to give us both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn at this particular point? Well, you know, Brexit has literally infected everything. And, you know, the the collective collapse from the decision to take the referendum onwards from the... Uh, that European election when Farage got a third of the vote. I mean, whenever you date it to that sort of point, that decision not to to argue it and fight it, but to appease it, you've had a, a string of appeasers. Yeah. Um, and you've ended up with where appeasement usually ends up, which is conflict and chaos. Do you think it would make any difference if some of the former prime ministers and former chart had stayed in the house of commons if 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 we i mean we could still have blair and brown and cameron and osborne in the commons providing what experience and wisdom they they could and instead the culture is that they leave and they go off and make lots of money and they part of the reason they leave is so that we can't see how much money they're there do you think it would help if they'd stayed yeah i mean particularly if they'd been committed to anything but you know it, it didn't look good did it um the Cameron whistling and walking away from the biggest <laughs> single error of judgment. This dumb Dida moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, nor does the sitting in the shed, um, nor does the, I mean, you know, Blair's Kazakhstan Toilet Federation speeches uh, and his other attempts at um, disguising, you know, where the foundation is is held, read Private Eye for, you know, last full 10 details. years. Full yeah. details, all of that in there. No, none of that helps hugely because it discredits politics. People think, well, they were only in it for where they would move on afterwards. So the statesman role, you know, I mean, John Major's tried to, to chip in and come back and do a bit of that. You know, Ken Clark's done it pretty effectively by sitting by, there. By still being there and he's you know, part of the You know, the reason he can turn up, and, you know, at a, uh, a rally and make the best speech of the afternoon is because he's been sitting there arguing the same thing. You may not like it very much. You may think he's smug and always says the same thing. But, you know, at least he's still there. And can make a speech off the cuff rather than reading something. And yeah, he's and, a proper and, politician. And again, puts Europe in a historical context, yeah. which... Again, to return to your point earlier, the referendum didn't appear out of the sky once and then disappear again. This is part of a continuum of arguing about Europe, which is not over. One of the things that I hadn't totally appreciated when I was uh, reading up on the many, many things that you've done, plays and sitcoms and all sorts of stuff, you created Tim Nice But Dim Mm. for Harry Enfield. Yes. Which, I mean, it now feels like half of of Parliament. Yes, no, has, God, has, no, no. You've, you've created a sort of story. They didn't realise it was a comedy character and they thought it was a role model. Yeah, no, no. I mean, the idea that this would have been what people aspired to be. <laughs> I mean, I was writing with my friend Nick Newman on Harry Enfield's show and Harry said, you know, all my characters are working class and shout a lot. Um, uh, have you got anyone else? And we thought of actually most of the people we'd been at school with. Because the 80s, everyone remembers it as a time where there was sort of tough public schoolboys entering the city and wearing sharp suits and, you know, saying breakfast is for wimps. And and all the people we knew from school had not quite got through the sick form and were working in their dad's firms or were selling water filters for other people's mates. And they were, you know, rather like Tim, very charming but not hugely bright. And and we wanted to sort of celebrate Tim um, as a figure. Uh, so that's why we wrote that. Do you think some people have said that because politics is so mad at the moment, not just in the UK, but America yeah. and everything as well, it, 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 it's sort of beyond satire? Yeah, people always say that. 
Um, <laughs> again, the great thing about A, getting older, and B, having a historical perspective. I mean, the first people said that the first writer I know who said satire is pointless was Juvenal. Um, he was the Roman satirist. He was writing in 100 AD. And he said, you know, Rome's crazy now. I mean, it's full of immigrants. You know, no one, no one's any good anymore. Only the leaders from the old days. I mean, the leaders we have now, they're absolutely hopeless. It's beyond satire. I mean, yeah, it, and it's beyond satire. And, and why do I bother to do it? You can't do it anymore. There's nothing to say. You know, he's writing a passage about how useless barristers are because he's lost some court case. And then he says, he says, you know, do you know that um, jockeys and uh, entertainers are paid more than school teachers? <laughs> and you're just thinking, yes, I think I have read this before, but I, I wasn't expecting it in Rome 180. So I think it's worth remembering that A, nothing is beyond satire. You just have to work harder. And you've got to find out what hurts. Saying, you know, Trump is orange and has got funny hair. He doesn't care anymore. If you say you're the worst businessman ever, um, all your businesses have lost money, he says, this isn't funny. Um, and, starts, <laughs> and then you know you've got him. Then you know you've got yeah. him. I mean, it's, it's how you do it. And those, in terms of um, British Parliament, I mean, yes, it's pretty hard work at the moment to think of anything more chaotic. But there are things to say, and they may be things that people aren't expecting you to say, which is sort of, I don't know, I mean... The, the funniest joke I read is just one of our cartoons saying this week. I mean, we've got a whole lot of these sort of uh, options, but um, I haven't seen military coup on there. Are we <laughs> are we ruling that out? Is is that not is that not possible? Is it, is it a military coup if Parliament votes for it first? Is that does that count as a military coup if they You're sort of right. invite yeah. the military in and and then have an affirmative vote afterwards? <laughs> I think an affirmative coup. You know, when Wilson was, was there, there were people actually seriously talking about this. The idea that Britain's never been anywhere near any of this before. I sort of quote my mother-in-law, bless her, who said to me, who's sort of 90, she said, I have, I have never been so frightened as I am about, you know, Britain now. And I said, you were a teenager in 1939, Mary. Uh, you really mustn't say this stuff. And she goes, oh, yes. Yes, you're quite right. <laughs> Yeah, the idea of an Yvette Cooper backbench bill seems to pale into comparison, uh, very slightly. Um, I just wanted to ask you, have you ever had any political ambition at all? Um, I haven't, no, um, which I think is a blessing for, for everybody. I mean, the only candidates who've ever stood from private eye have been joke candidates. Our MD column, who writes about the NHS, is threatening to stand against Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, so, um, and Willie Rushton stood in the old days against Bailey Vass. And, you know, there there have been joke candidates. But candidates, not, not seriously. But no, and I, I mean, I do think that the best thing you can do as a journalist is do your job. That's the bit you do. Yeah. And then the other bit is for someone else to do. You were very young when you became editor. And I think initially you said you were going to do it for five years and then, you know, the time, time I think has passed I think I, you're being kind to me. I was very pompous. I think I said, I'll do this job for a few years and I'll, <laughs> I'll see how it is. Um, you know, I mean, I was extremely lucky <laughs> to survive even those few years. So, yes, I mean, I didn't realise then, A, what a great job it was, and B, how probably I wouldn't be offered anything else for the rest of my life. <laughs> you just plan to go on and on and on and will have to be prized out of this mm. beautiful office. Well, usually people don't retire from the eye. They tend to die. <laughs> so uh, everything I've done, as you kindly pointed out in the introduction, you know, there's been eight billion series of Have I Got News For You and the eye's been going since Gladstone and uh, they're long runners. But you outlast all the people that you're... That you've got the knowledge that you'll still be there even 
once Theresa May's gone or... Yes, I suppose, you know, it's a bit like being the Queen. You think, oh, there's, <laughs> there's another Prime Minister now. Oh, do come in. We'll see how you do. And do you think there's something big happening in politics? Are we facing political parties breaking up? People say the Tory party's finished, the Labour party's a completely different beast. Is this a big moment, do you think? Yeah, no, I think it probably is. Reading history doesn't make you just think, oh, we've been here before, there's nothing to say. I mean, it makes you think we've been here before, What what's similar? Is this Robert Peel? Is this the Corn Laws? It might be. I mean, I... I certainly think there's a there's a a feeling that we've we've had enough of the wings of the party dictating the middle. I can feel that really strongly. I'm not just because I want to feel it, but um, the idea that all those people who've been sitting there thinking, do I have to put up with listening to this forever? Is that all my party is is going to be now? Yeah. Is this voice on the extreme of where you were? And I think I think it is. It would be a terrifically good time. That would be one of the real pluses. If you want to sort of, what I feel positive about the whole Brexit fiasco, it has exposed problems with the way politics is run. I'm hoping the next generation, the, that bunch of 40 and 50-year-olds, will decide they can do it differently. We just need the voters to agree. Yes, but, you know, <laughs> they'll come round. <laughs> I think we should end on some optimism before we talk ourselves into even more glue. Ian Hislop, thank you very much. My pleasure.